I'm Stacey Gross, and this is Two Moms Day Drinking. In this episode, I'm going to get my story out of the way so that we can focus on all of the amazing stories that people have already signed up to tell me. I'm much more excited about those stories than I could ever be about this one. This story has been in my head since the day it happened, obviously, it would be. But I've been trying to turn it into some kind of a writing project, a creative nonfiction project for what feels like a thousand years, and I I can't get it off the ground. And it's because I think Two Moms Day Drinking is what the project wanted to be the whole time. And I was so focused on my own story that I didn't realize the important part is everyone else's story and the ways in which we're all similar. So the podcast is a collection of first-person narratives. Essentially, that's all I'm trying to accomplish. But I fully believe that through collecting and sharing first-person narratives about motherhood, so many women are going to see a connection with another person that they never thought existed. Some of the things that hold us back the worst are the things that we don't talk about or the things that we're ashamed of or the things that we're afraid people might find out. And I have found, I have found that the more we talk about the things that were hard in our lives or the things that were shameful in our lives, the less powerful those things become to impact our behavior and our ability to move past them. So that's what the podcast is all about. This has been the intro, which is usually more scripted than the interview, but um, we're going to go in reverse today. So on June 3rd, 2014, my now ex-husband was arrested for a slew of felony sex crimes. At 9.30 that morning, the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Child Predator Task Force knocked on my door, withdrew me from my home by the wrists, marched me across the alleyway where we lived, into the parking lot of the bar next door, and placed me in the back of a police cruiser. From there I watched, screaming my throat raw for them to stop, and then just please be careful, and finally please just put your guns away, as they swarmed inside the house to sweep it with their guns drawn. Six feet from the front door, my twin two-year-old daughters stood in diapers, and I'm sure that they were awestruck. Over the course of that afternoon, officers from local police departments, local detectives, and task force agents turned my home inside out. Drawers were opened, contents spilled onto the floor and left there, pillows and blankets were thrown to the ground, the tread patterns from officers' boots were clearly evident on the fabric. My desk was disassembled, my phones were confiscated, and they would not tell me until about an hour into the whole ordeal what they were even there for. Though I begged for information to no end, and to no avail, I'd come to understand later, though, that they were telling me nothing because they wanted to know exactly what I knew, which unfortunately for them was nothing, and that frustrated everyone. How could I not know that my husband had accumulated illegal images of children on every electronic device in the house except for my personal laptop. On the phone, I had given him the day before as a Father's Day gift. How could I not have known? By three that afternoon, the chaos had faltered and then quelled, and finally the house was empty. But the mess remained, and it took me and two grown men three days to put that house back together. I lived on my sofa for at least a week. I think I must have somehow fused the cells of my body with its leather surface. I wasn't working at the time, but I had been a stay-at-home mom for the past two years. I'd given up a spot in the Chatham University low-residency MFA program when I found out I was pregnant. The night I found out, he and I were on day three of our honeymoon, and before things got too serious, he had laid out a serious ultimatum at my feet. If I didn't want to have kids, for him, he said that was a deal-breaker. And that was fair enough, 
everyone has their deal breakers, but I thought a lot about it. Although I had never really wanted to be a mom, it was because I didn't feel like I had the skills to be a good mom. But I thought with a partner who's also invested, I felt like I might be able to go back and by parenting my own child with support, with an interested, active and engaged partner, by raising my own child, I could address some of the issues in my own childhood that had bothered me. So we talked and we were on the same page. We both wanted one kid, one child. I was an only child. He had a brother, but we both agreed that one child a few years down the road would be okay. So we got married. I was on birth control when I got pregnant, actually. Um, I think there was a class action lawsuit for the actual pill, the actual drug that I was on as birth control, because it had failed a lot of people um, within a certain amount of time surrounding when I got pregnant. Um, so that was a thing. <laughs> but the day that I found out I was pregnant, we were on day three of our honeymoon. So um, when I showed my then husband the positive pregnancy test, and then a second one and a third one, um, because I refused to believe what they said until I finally just ran out of sticks to pee on. So I took them all down to him and I showed him and he didn't say anything at first. Um, you need to understand this is a conservative Christian, very right leaning, strongly opinionated. Uh, I remember once when we were dating, he had made the offhand comment that he felt so strongly about the right to life narrative that he would be more than happy to be the person blowing up abortion clinics. <laughs> and we all have these experiences that shape the way that we respond to things. And unfortunately, my response to that was to write it off as one of those stupid things that you say and you're not really thinking. And I'm sure he would never hurt someone, right? I knew him. I'd known him my whole life. Our families had known each other our whole lives. This was not a stranger to me. We were 30 when we had our children. So, I mean, I was old enough that there's a lingering feeling that I should have known better. And I think that it's that way with every woman who's been through an abusive relationship and you don't have to have bruises to be in an abusive relationship. It, it's one of the hardest things though that I deal with because I know that intellectually and I would say that to anybody and I would fully mean it. Manipulation and gaslighting and emotional abuse and they're all real and they're all just as damaging if not more so than physical abuse. But this is just one of the things that I carry over from this experience. I cannot give myself that same comfort. I don't know why. I'm working on it. <laughs> um, that's one of my little editorials in the story. Um, the veiled request to have an abortion from the man I literally just married. Um, the man I'd established years ago that would be the person I would marry. We were dating seriously. It, it was what I thought we both wanted. I'd been given no indication otherwise, although probably had I been a little bit more willing to see them, there probably would have been opportunities to be a little more logical. In any case, when we got home from our honeymoon, I followed up with the obstetrician. And so I go, um, made the appointment. I have a positive pregnancy test. I need to have it confirmed, you know, the whole thing. Uh, so I go in and, and they're doing an ultrasound and the tech that's running the machine keeps looking at the screen and looking at me. And kind of looking at the screen and looking, I can't tell if she's puzzled or concerned or confused, but none of that is kind of what I'm looking for um, on her face. And then finally she's like, well, I'm going to go get the doctor. So I say, okay. Uh, and I'm laying on the table, you know, no modesty. And um, in comes the doctor and she looks at the screen and 
she smiled and she goes, you're going to have twins. And anybody, I feel like that's supposed to be such a great moment. Showing your husband the positive pregnancy test when you both just got married willingly and wanted to have kids, even though it's not in the time frame that you discussed, I feel like that shouldn't be a sad memory. You're having twins. <laughs> I was six weeks pregnant. Um, a lot of women don't find out that they are actually even pregnant until about nine to 12 weeks because that's when they start to feel symptoms with singletons. With twins, everything is double, um, including the hormones. So um, I remember my boobs hurt like really bad and that never happened to me. And I was just like, I, I got to take a test. I just knew, I just knew that something wasn't right. Um, and sure enough, my mother, when I told my mom after that appointment, oh, I'm having twins. Um, I think her response was like, oh no. And I couldn't blame her because it was kind of mine too, but only because I was in this situation where I felt like this is not normal and I didn't know how to address it. Like I was starting to see like, this is not a good, this is a toxic situation that I'm in and I don't know how to get out of it now because what, what am I going to do? I just married this guy. It's not sudden. It wasn't an impulsive decision. Like what do I have to say for myself if I just six months later, I'm gone. And there, there was no one I could talk to. There was no one I could ask that question to, I felt. Um, so I wound up Making the decisions I made, I think, because I felt so isolated and ashamed. And that just continues when you're in those women, <laughs> girls, when you're in those relationships and you're feeling like that, it's not, I know you want it to get better. I know, but it's not gonna. So, oh, don't justify it and don't like rationalize it in your head because it's, the problems are only going to get bigger, man. And it's so hard. It's so hard. I, that is... I am not where I want to be emotionally. I still carry a lot of um, internalized guilt and shame. Um, but the one thing that has changed completely in my character is that I am fully aware of red flags. <laughs> like, And it's a situation where men don't like it when you are upfront and direct. A lot of them. Some of them are great. Some of them do. Um, others just can't handle it. And so you'll say, I'm not really interested, but thank you for, you know, the dates or whatever has happened. Thank you. I've had a good time, but I just don't feel a connection, whatever. They don't like that. And then they have to say that they're breaking up with you because it makes them feel better. It's a whole thing that happens, but it's hard to be like, um, this is not good. And as much as I want it to be good, it's never going to be, and it's going to get worse. I'm going to leave. That's hard to do, but it, you can learn it girls. You can learn it. And um, it's better to learn it early and not waste a lot of time. A lot of the regret that I have in my life comes from the time that I wasted just not listening to myself. And having the courage to say, I don't care what anybody else in my life thinks about it. I'm done with this. I felt like I had a responsibility to my parents. They just paid for my wedding, right? Like, <laughs> I had a responsibility to all these people. I made a commitment. And that was the other thing. That's another thing that I think a lot of women who find themselves in these situations feel. Um, my parents had gotten divorced and I just always, it wasn't, the divorce itself wasn't a super traumatic thing, but I always just said to myself, like, that was one of the moments where I realized my parents were able to truly disappoint me. And as an adult, obviously I don't feel that way because I understand a lot more things about life. But as a 14 year old kid, they, I felt disappointed in my parents because they weren't willing to put in the hard work or whatever. I guess I had that sense about me up until 14 and Everything went a little sideways, but, um, so I, 
I had this concept of commitment that was very inflexible and black and white. And um, it just, it all came together in this perfect storm and it, and it happens. And people hear about these women that are being abused and they'll say, well, why didn't you just leave? You should have known. Even if you do know, it's not that you don't know. At a certain point, you know, but you have no idea how to even say to someone, I need help. And you also love the person. On top of it, I loved him with all of his flaws. Um, I truly wanted to do anything I could to make it work, you know, right? So there's all these extremely pressuring elements when you're in that situation. I think people need to be more understanding of the fact that you have no idea what you would do. You can say, oh, I would have left. You don't know. You don't know what you would do in that situation with that person's history. And you can't judge a person for the things that they learned or the ways that they learned to behave and, and react to situations like this as a kid. I knew nothing was perfect. And I know that life is not like the movies, but I felt like when women would say to me, like, I'm getting enormous, right? I mean, I have a picture of me the day before I had those girls and no one will ever see it except for my stepmom who took it. It's like on lockdown, like I'm pretty open with my flaws, but that is one picture that's not coming out. So I'm getting enormous and people are stopping me in the, in the supermarket because no one has boundaries when you're pregnant. If you haven't been pregnant yet, ladies, <laughs> just wait. All the hands want to touch the belly and there are no boundaries and you're, you're not really allowed to say no without the same situation. Like when you tell a guy, thank you, but no, thank you. And then they get mad. It's that kind of situation. Like you're the bitch for having boundaries. Just be aware. You're going to be the bitch one way or another. So you might as well be the bitch for actually having boundaries. That's my opinion. So people are touching my belly and when are you due? And oh, I always wanted twins and all. Oh, that's a whole other podcast. All the things that people say to women who are about to have twins that if you thought about actually being that woman and hearing those things, you'd be like, don't ever say that again. That's a whole nother topic for another day. But I'm wanting, I'm wanting to feel what they're feeling when they see my belly and when they touch my belly, I'm, I want to be excited like they are. These are perfect strangers. They don't know me at all. They are never going to see these kids. Like they have no relationship to us whatsoever, but they're so excited because it's a baby. I wanted to feel that way so bad. I, I just, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself, pressure that's internalized and, and put on you in society. And you start to sort of take it on as your own expectation, which is one of the things that this podcast seeks to fully disassemble. But I, I wanted to be feeling that same excitement and I wasn't. And it was, that's another regret that I'll always have. I just never could feel excited. And it, it's, some people say like, why would you even say that out loud? Like your kids might hear that someday and they might, but like they will, they will. It's on a freaking podcast, but I'm not ashamed of it. And I shouldn't have to be ashamed of it. I tried so hard to have that new mom excitement, but there was so much rotting in my life around me that I couldn't feel that way. Another one of those things that you know intellectually, but you can't feel for yourself. It's a fun world. Trauma. So I feel like I'm having the wrong kinds of feelings. No one would really understand. And there would actually be a lot of judgment if I were to say what I was really feeling. So I clamped my shit down, down. Like my emotional world went on full lockdown and I had never been one after my parents' divorce, I had never been one to want to let people know what I was feeling. I felt things very deeply and very intensely, but I felt very strongly that I did not want anyone to know what my emotional context was at any given moment because that's vulnerable. Who wants to be vulnerable 
when you have strong lived experiences of being hurt from being vulnerable. You learn to be tough. You just do. And I don't think you ever unlearn it. So, so seven months pregnant, I, um, I've already left Chatham. I'm working at a factory. I just gotten the job that summer. It was supposed to be a summer only job. They hired me full time. Um, I was on third shift in maintenance in this factory that makes like parts for semi trucks. Um, and I was running a fork truck and I was janitorial. Basically I was cleaning a shop with heavy duty industrial chemicals, um, running a fork truck, trying to stay awake. I've got two human beings cooking in my guts and, uh, I was not performing well. Um, so I was put on light duty, which meant I got to go to the plant on the other side of town and I got to solder together like led brake lights and stuff. And then eventually that became packaging. And then eventually (laughs) at seven months, they let me go. Um, because one of the things that happens when you are having twins is that you have to go every single week for non-stress tests from about five, four or five months on. I did anyway. Um, I had a really atypical twin pregnancy. I had no, um, gestational diabetes. I had no, up until the day that they took them within a few days of that, I started to swell really badly in my legs. Um, and they were losing fluid. So it was decided they would take them, you know, I was told to be ready at 36 weeks, have a go bag ready at 36 weeks. Cause twins don't go like as long as singletons, 39 weeks and five days. <laughs> and I could hardly fit in the car to get to Erie, which is about an hour away. We're doing it, you know, there and back once a week. Um, yeah. So I didn't have any paid time off saved up. I just started that summer. So they let me go. I mean, I'm, I missed every single Friday. I was had a standing order to not be present on Fridays. So it just didn't work out. I have a lot to say about how the United States handles, uh, maternity related needs for leave, but that's also another podcast for another day. Cause I got a lot to say about that. Um, but I was a liability and expense and at best I was an annoyance really towards the end. So yeah, I had to go in their minds. I had to go. Um, I spent the last month of my pregnancy sleeping on the sofa because I had this ridiculous sleigh bed that was like three feet by the time you got to the top of the mattress. Like it was just a very tall bed frame. And then I had a mattress and a box spring and it was like three feet to the ground. And, um, I couldn't get in bed anymore. I spent the majority of the last month just on the floor in a child's pose. If you do yoga, it's like you're on your knees and you're leaning forward with both your hands out, stretched out as far as you can get because that was the only thing that would take the pressure off my back. I slept like that sometimes. Um, but I slept on the couch for the for the last month of my pregnancy. I just couldn't even – I couldn't physically get in and out of bed. And it was more comfortable actually too. Um, it's not weird, right? I was sleeping on the couch because it was better for me to do so. And I had decided to do that, but that would be fine. But here's another way in which my life was not what was expected. And it wasn't the behaviors that I got from him were not what people would have thought. He had no criminal record. He had no um, public issues. He seemed for all intents and purposes, he went to work every day. He saved his money. He wasn't out drinking. He wasn't out drugging. He wasn't out running around with women. Um, he went to church every Sunday. I did not. I'm agnostic. Um, but we agreed to disagree on that. And for the most part, it was fine. Um, but that's because we didn't actually 
have deep conversations about it. We we agreed to disagree because neither one of us wanted to fight. I think for whatever reason, he wanted to make this work just as much as I did. And I, I don't know to this day what his motivation for that was, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, where it got weird, me sleeping on the sofa, was when the girls were born, um, he asked me to stay on the sofa and to keep them in the living room with me in their bassinets until they were ready to go in the nursery on their own because he needed his sleep. He worked, after all, and never missed an opportunity to remind me that I wasn't working. What do you say in the middle of an argument? I mean, it's a, it's a completely um, logically flawed argument. It's But in that situation, what do you say? I wasn't working. I already felt guilty for not being excited about this whole thing. Now, I mean, I was, I was willing to take on the guilt that he assigned to me. And I, I'm not guiltless in the situation by any means. Um, but the things that happened and the things that I did in our marriage toward the end, I never cheated. Um, even after he was arrested, I wrote letters to the judge to ask for leniency. <laughs> oh, God. Because I was convinced. I mean, he had me convinced, you know. Um, I couldn't parent without him. I wasn't, Kate, I wasn't strong enough to be a parent on my own. I couldn't do this. I needed him. And I wasn't working. How was I going to eat, right? I mean, just all these little mind games that they play and you're already in this situation where you're you're being weakened strategically and stepwise and you get to a point, you you put the frog in the pot and it's just regular lukewarm water and you turn the water on and it doesn't know. I don't even know if that's true, but I know that's what I always hear. That's how people describe it. It's a cliche, but I mean, it's a, it's a effective image. I mean, at that point I would have done anything just to keep him from giving me that hateful look that he had for me. Like he just had so much contempt for me in the end. And I think a lot of it was projection. I mean, this is a good place to disclaim officially that I am not a licensed anything. Um, I'm barely an adult. But looking back, he was so intensely contemptuous of me. And from where I am now, I can see that none of that was about me. He was putting that on me and that was for something else. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was because he knew, like, if you're doing something wrong, that wrong, and you're playing like you're not doing it and you're making the problems because of everyone else, that's got to be about you. I don't know. That's my thoughts. Um, but I, I was already in a place where I'd have done anything to keep that look out of his eyes. Just that I couldn't, I couldn't stand the contempt because I had gotten to a point where my default setting was to internalize what anyone said about me or felt about me or thought about me. And this was from long before I got married. Um, just the, the events of my life are such that I find myself with my temperament being very susceptible to internalizing other people's opinions of me. It's another little fun little tidbit that I've gained through my years of therapy. Um, between the time when I gave birth to my girls and we did, we slept in the living room for quite a long time until my very best friend from college. And this is the only woman who's ever known every inch of me. <laughs> I've showed her every inch of my emotional being um, without reservation. She's seen me at points that I wouldn't even want to admit have existed, except they have. Um, and she's seen me at my best, too. And she's been there through it all. And um, she's amazing. <laughs> she puts up with me so well. It's outstanding. <laughs> um, 
she came and she is very much the opposite of me. She is very um, vocal. She is not afraid to let you know exactly what she thinks about a situation. And when she left, we were back in the bedroom. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you, Aunt Chanel. I love you. <laughs> the thing is, I got to a point where I was feeling existential dread and anxiety just on an everyday baseline that was where I rested at. That was my resting emotional state, just baseline existential dread. And that was for years. And that's why I think that people get into therapy after this kind of stuff. And you do, you have these insights and you, you learn so much about yourself, but you don't know how to actually change the way you feel about yourself because it's such a learned response, which means it can be unlearned. I believe it, but I just have not been great at getting to that point. I think it's really good though. If you can get to a point where you know it intellectually, don't push yourself to feel it too quickly because you're going to burn yourself out and you're going to get disappointed in yourself and you're not going to be able to grow past that. So if where you're at, if you've been through this kind of thing and where you're at is like if you understand these things that you should forgive yourself, or you should be gentle with yourself and all these things that therapists say that part of me is like, oh, thank you. I needed to hear that. And the other part of me is like, I'm gonna fucking barf. <laughs> what I've come to realize is that the day he was arrested and this is why you know, I have worked it out as a series of essays. I have worked it out as a full memoir without being in, you know, essays compartmentalized. But then I thought, well, maybe if I write it as a series of essays, which never sell, I mean, that's harder to sell than a book of poetry from an unknown author, but hey, that's what I'm going to do because that's how I like to roll. <laughs> Can't be done. Hold my beer. But it wasn't working. I couldn't write this I couldn't even write the essay and stay in it long enough to actually write it because I still, even now, I still, like, I can't, I have this whole scripted response. I can't follow it because it's, it's just still so, like, it's a physical reaction when I even think about it. But the, the point I want to get to is that if you're in this situation, man, I didn't feel like I could call a safe place or that's our local domestic violence shelter. I didn't feel like I could reach out to anyone, not because they wouldn't respond, but because how would my family respond? You know, that was, if I didn't have this marriage, then I would have to depend on them so much. And I was not confident in my ability to depend on them, not so much for physical things um, or for financial help if I needed it. But I knew that I would have no one to support me. I would have no one who would be able to meet me where I was emotionally. And I wasn't sure that I could handle it emotionally on my own. That's another reason that I stayed. But I think you get to this point and um, women, if you're in a situation and I don't care if it's like nothing when you're going through trauma, let me tell you this, when you're going through trauma, yours is never as serious as anyone else's. That's just a fact. Like you're never going to believe that yours is, but I'm not getting beaten, but he's not breaking my legs, but he's not, you know, burying me in the woods. But that's how it gets to that point. <sighs> if you're in this situation, ladies, I need you to understand that you have no one anyhow, because you might be able to superficially call on these people that you know you couldn't, you know, wouldn't be able to support you in the way that you needed to be supported if you left. But you don't have them anyway because they're not actually being supportive to you in the way that you need them to be. You're just able to call them and kind of sort of hint that everything's not okay. 
but they never take the hints. Just, dude, you got to go. It's got to stop and you got to be the one to stop it. You got to be the one to do it. Leave, man. It's not going to get better. It, However hard it's going to be when you make the choice to leave, whoever drops away from your life because of that, man, like they were never helping you to begin with. They were never an important part of your life to begin with or at least a resource. I'm sure they were important. They were intensely important to you, but they were never a resource to you. So you can't tell yourself that I won't have resources because you never have them to begin with. Like if they're not the type of people that you can go to and say, if you can't go to your family, go to someone and um, you're going to have to be your own advocate because the system is imperfect. You know, Um, the most dangerous time for a woman who is experiencing abuse is immediately after she stands up for herself in some way or another, whether that's reporting it to law enforcement, whether that's leaving or trying to leave, whether that's they find out that you're going to therapy or you're talking to someone outside because it's very cult-like, the the culture of abuse. Um, and that's, that's the one thing that I want to do here. I want all the talking that we're doing and the telling of personal stories to destigmatize all of those things. When he went to jail, um, you know, before sentencing, I wrote letters. I wrote letters to the judge. People from the church wrote letters to the judge. I'm not going to go into the church thing because there's a lot there that is not right. And I'm not going to discuss it um, because there's no resolution to it. So it's something that I need to work out on my own. But there there was that element, too, of um, it's a very conservative place and women have a very... Um, you have a role to play and you don't have to play the role necessarily at home, but there's still not a lot of power for women in these types of religiously, very, very fundamentally religiously infused relationships. And Christianity is no different from any other fundamental belief system. Um, just cause it has Jesus in the cast of characters does not mean that it is um, innocuous, but it is like leaving a cult. Eventually, it was uh, two years, two years. No, it was one year after he was arrested. Um, one year after my husband was arrested, I started working. Um, there was an ad in the paper for a reporter and I had absolutely zero journalism experiences um, in my, you know, tool bag to use. But I walked in off the street and I was like, you should hire me for this. I would kick ass. And I did. Um I made a lot of mistakes, like really bad, stupid mistakes. And I was kind of a curiosity because I was not a journalist. So I was a little bit of a curiosity in the newsroom. I kind of am anywhere that I go, though. So that's okay. I kind of found my niche there. I feel like maybe not. I don't know. I I got to where I felt like I fit in there. Um, But more important than that, that was hard, too, by the way, like, Going from this intensely toxic, like, you suck and you really suck a lot and you're the main problem in all of our problems, this kind of experience daily, to where you have to interact with other adults your age, like, on a normal, you have to appear normal. (laughs) You can't be normal after that, but you got to pretend to be. That's fun. Uh, More important, though, than learning how to interact with people um, more than I ever have in my whole life. I learned more about how to pretend to fit in there than I did or probably will anywhere. And that was helpful to have peer relationships with coworkers that, you know, to a certain point understood me or, um, tolerated that they might never quite understand what was happening in my noodle. 
um, more than the peer relationships, I feel like what changed my life during the three years, because I worked at the paper. So I, one year after he was arrested, I started working as a reporter. And then, um, pretty soon after I started, um, my managing editor asked me to write a column and I was like, I don't know how to write a column. And he was like, yes, you do just sit down and write it. Please stop bitching and just do it. And I did. And it, it went over really well. Um, so for three years I wrote, um, two stories a day generally for the paper paper. And then on Saturdays they ran local columnists, um, of which I was one. And I started out kind of dipping my toe in the water. I'd write a little bit about my life and then kind of back off and be a little bit more intellectual. And it, that's the difference between really good writing and okay writing is the element of vulnerability and, you know, the level to which you're willing to reveal yourself. And that's very easy for me to do on paper, but face to face, all these other things come into play. Um, but I, I was able to really um, make use of my naturally dark humor um, to write about my life and to sort of, I felt like for so for that year, I felt like every time I would go to the store and there were, there were times, you know, he was registered on Megan's Law and I would come out from the, the supermarket and, you know, somebody, there are people who watch those sites just to harass those people. And I'm, I don't agree with it. I mean, obviously, no one does. It's illegal. Um, but morally, it sucks. And it's not even so much that I feel for the rights of the offender, um, but I feel for their families because I had nothing to do with any of it. But I would come out from the supermarket and in the dirt on the back window of my hatchback would be written pedophile. Right? I mean, it didn't happen a lot, but it happened enough that... I felt everywhere I went, like everyone knew and everyone was judging me and I was the scum of the earth. I would find garbage in my yard sometimes, just a bag of garbage dumped on my yard. Never happened before this. I mean, I can't say that it happened because of that, but I mean, you know, it wasn't good. Um, it's the Families of these people, man, whatever you feel about that whole situation, you don't know nothing about their families and more than likely neither they don't know anything about this dude because the nature of that offense of sex crimes against children, you get so good at hiding it because it's the ultimate, the ultimate, like in our society, those are the people that we condemn, you know, and that's not necessarily right either. But I mean, you learn to hide really good. If that's going to be a thing that you're going to pursue, if you can't control your impulses and, you know, your compulsions to behave in certain ways, then you're going to get really good at hiding it because the only alternative, if you're, if you're caught, I mean, and it's changing legally, there, the legal ramifications and the requirements are lessening because they're starting to realize like, whatever you feel about them, I, I guess I have to agree that it's not right to turn them into pariahs. Give them, you know what, give them their time and then just a shunning would be better. And a shunning is a pretty damn harsh thing, I can tell you. But um, I feel like it would be a more humane way to go about it. Just let them go on with their lives and deal with whatever their emotional issues are in regards to that. But so I'd come home and I'd find stuff in my yard and I'd find stuff, you know, on the back of the car. And so I, for that year, I felt for a long time, like everybody knows and everybody hates me. And it doesn't matter what my narrative of this whole thing is because everybody's judging me. So just coming out of that, I mean, just coming out of that, you learn it, you, you start to see it intellectually and believe it intellectually. I believe that, but it just 
making the jump from understanding it in an intellectual way to believing it and treating yourself with compassion is a big jump and I have not crossed that gap yet. So what happened was people would stop me in the supermarket again now and about a year into writing the column, people would stop me and say, oh, you're that girl that writes that column on Saturdays. Hey, I just read that and that was really good. And at first I was like, I don't like this. I feel when someone gives me a compliment, even if I know it mostly to be true, and this is the same thing over again, I feel like a vending machine that's trying to take a wrinkly dollar bill. Like I try so hard to be normal, but I you remember Chandler Bing, how he would smile and it was always, he looked like he was in pain. That's me when you're trying to compliment me. So it's just, it's, it's awkward and uncomfortable. I, but I got used to it. I started, like, people would say, like this one woman came up to me. She's like, oh my God, I read your column last Saturday. And oh, I just, I spit out my coffee laughing. It was so great. And that was awesome. Like I made somebody laugh. Like, that's cool. I felt cool, you know? Um, or this one woman came up to me and said, you know, I haven't, I haven't spoken to my daughter in about a year. Um, but I read your column this Saturday and it got me to thinking about whatever our, I don't remember what their issue had been, but it had the subject of the column that week had reminded her of it. And she wound up calling her daughter and talking to her. And she said, my grandson's going to come over for the first time in a year and see me this afternoon. And I was like, that's, I felt like so happy. That's my story. You know, I have so much more I could say about it but there's really no need. Um, my story is that whole, what, 40, Jesus, 46 minute. Um, well, I promised a full episode. So there you go. Um, now that's over with and we can go forward with the podcast. And now you have an understanding of why this matters. Um, I think it's really important to collect stories just from a sociological or, um, anthropological position. I just feel like Stories are important. We tend to diminish them. You know, we tend to think of fiction as being just a pastime and it's just stories are something we do when we're not, when we're being idle, right? But it's not. It's one of the many mechanisms, our stories and our personal narratives. They're the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, but the telling of the story to other people is part of what makes society what it is, right? It's, think about, a world where no one told anything to anyone. There were no stories. Like there would be no connections. And I started to realize as I was, I came up with the concept of a podcast and I had never podcasted before. And I was like, this is not, I, this isn't, I don't know anything about this medium, but it turns out I know a lot more about it. I don't, I'm learning the technical part of it, but the storytelling part of it, it's like, who I am. This is it just it's what I'm supposed to be doing. But it's not my story's told. There, I told my story. That's not a book, right? It's not a book. It's everyone's stories. It's an ongoing project. That's I think what was trying to be created and I kept um filtering it through the lens of my own experience and finally I realized Emily Eggleston's story. That some woman who is in the situation where I was, I have no, I don't know how to reach out. I, maybe I could, but I don't know how, and I'm too afraid of what life might be like because it's unfamiliar and it's uncertain. So I'm just going to stay where I am. Someone like that who needs to be in recovery might hear Emily's story and they go to AA the next day and it doesn't work out because like we said in that episode, right? Like it's not immediate. You, you go back and forth, like progress, profound personal change is not linear. 
right? You go forward a few steps and then you kind of backtrack and then you, every step you make a small gain and then you go back a little bit and then you come back. But I was given a voice to tell my story in that column and that did a little bit to heal me. But what did more to heal me was the reactions from other people. If you think of the world as like good, is, it, is the world a good place or a bad place? I think it's, it's like a bank account. It's always changing, but your individual contributions maybe don't change the world, but they change someone's world. And that's so cool. That's so powerful. And I wanted to give that to other people. So it's good for us to be able to tell our stories. It's good for us to have a platform and a voice. And I wanted to give that to other people with this podcast. That's the whole goal. Um, my story is the least important part of all of it. Um, and I'm only giving it to you because my interview canceled last Saturday and I needed an episode zero with some background anyway. So it's over and done with now. The important part can go forward now. And that's everyone else's stories. I want to give women and also, you know, in June, we're going to talk to dads in May. I think I'm going to focus on grandmothers. Um, I want to focus on women who, have chosen not to have kids at all or women who have chosen to delay having children. That's something that society has a lot of strong opinions on, right? Um, and I wanted to give all of the people who had something to say about parenting as a as the enormous concept that it is, I wanted all of those people to be able to do that. But what's more important than them doing that, for them, what they get out of it is that Someone bears witness to their story, and that's healing to have someone give you the gift of their time, right? To have someone sit down for an hour and listen to your story, that's pretty. That's a pretty huge honor in this day and age, right? But what happens because of the fact that they told their story? For anyone who wants to do it, I think that's the goal. For anybody who signed up for an interview, yeah, they want to tell their story and have their little minute and, and have their space to say their piece, and I think everybody's entitled to that, really. But what they really get out of it is that they're putting money in the account. You know, they're putting something out there that might someday help someone. And just by doing that, they're they're building the positive whatevers. I don't know. I'm not a hippie. I'm not a hippie. But there's got to be some sort of moral accounting system. There just has to be. I don't know what it is. I'm agnostic. I don't care if it's, you know, Pete the Badger or the Flying Spaghetti Monster or whatever it is. But there's got to be some kind of moral accounting system. And I feel like telling your story gives you a reward and that you're heard. But it, more importantly, it puts money in the account and it makes the world better for one person. And that's all it takes. You don't have to change the world. Nobody has to change the world. Everybody has to just try and do their best to change someone's world. So I hope that someone hears one of these interviews and is like, oh my God, I'm not the only person even if that's all you take away from it is that you know you're not the only person who has this secret, you know, shame or fear or worry or this thing that you're so afraid that someone might find out about you. And you are given an example of how being vulnerable is actually okay. And it's hard. I still am not good at it in person. And that's why it, this was not a writing project. And I knew it. I kept trying to make it one, but it wasn't. But that's why I settled on a podcast and not... YouTube videos, right? I don't want, I want to be separated. I still want that distance from the audience, but I want the closeness to be in a connection, not in looking at my face. So 
that's the story of two moms day drinking and it's been 53 minutes and you are a darling darling human being if you're still listening to my dumb story so with that i am going to say i'm stacy gross and this has been two moms day drinking the music for this podcast was written and produced by my father bob gross on his goddamn electric ukulele if you liked what you heard today share it with a friend and come back next week for another episode see you next week